this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode four of the 2019 R&D season, Just Science interviews Dr. Suzanne Bell, professor and chair of the Department of Forensic and Investigative Science at West Virginia University to discuss a method for consistent single-shot detection of organic and inorganic gunshot residue. Smaller crime labs often face a lack of resources and don't have the funds for the most current equipment used in the detection of gunshot residue. With that in mind, Dr. Bell and her team have created a way to detect GSR using a machine already found in most toxicology departments, a liquid chromatography mass spectrometer. Listen along as she discusses a method for using LCMS to detect organic and inorganic gunshot residues from the same sample in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. Hello and welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, Dr. John Morgan, with RTI International and the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. My guest today is Dr. Suzanne Bell, who is a professor and chair of the Department of Forensic and Investigative Sciences at West Virginia University. She served on the National Commission on Forensic Science in 2014 through 2017 and served on both the Scientific Working Group and the OSAC Subcommittee on Gunshot Residue, as well as the Forensic Science Education Program Accreditation Committee, also known as VPAC. She has been uh, the Associate Editor for Chemistry at the Journal of Forensic Sciences, has written a number of books, the textbook Forensic Chemistry, Introduction to Microscopy, the Comprehensive Introductory Text, Forensic Science and Introduction to Scientific and Investigative Techniques, and her current research projects relate to the toxicity of synthetic cannabinoids, which is actually quite interesting. I would like to talk to you about that sometime, Suzanne, but not today. <laughs> Our subject today which is new approaches to firearms discharge residue, consistent single-shot detection of organic and inorganic residues from one sample using LCMS and host guest complexes. Welcome to the podcast, Suzanne. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. So fans of FTCOE will know Dr. Bell's work very, very well. She uh, has contributed to some of the technical notes and other materials that you can find on ForensicCOE.org concerning gunshot residue examination, particularly with respect to the detection of organic gunshot residues. Her work at West Virginia University now is being funded by NIJ's research program, and her archived presentation for the NIJ Research and Development Symposium is also now available on the ForensicCOE.org website. So before or after listening to the podcast, feel free to watch that archived presentation to get more of the technical details and that kind of thing. But we're going to talk to Dr. Bell now about some of the other aspects of the work and kind of get a feel for kind of where we're sitting now in the world of organic gunshot residue examination. Tell me, Suzanne, how did you get into gunshot residue at West Virginia University is this something that was a natural outgrowth of your work in toxicology, or you know, what, what was your interest there? It grew out of my interest in ion mobility spectrometry, actually. it was We had been using that particular technique for methamphetamine labs, just characterizing surfaces and, and looking at things. And it's, it is widely used in 
airports for detection of black powder. So we were interested in seeing, well, could we develop this as perhaps a screening technique for hand swabs for organic residues, but screening tests, not a definitive identification. So we did a small project with that in 2011, which really kicked off my interest because that was successful as a screening technique. So that's when we got interested and started developing and working from there. And this will this will come out with your current research. IMS is a fun technique. It's a it is commonly used. I actually did used to do a little bit of explosives detection work. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's using IMS. IMS is it can be quantified, but it is definitely a qualitative technique, and it's so easy. I think IMSs are very temperamental instruments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was, yeah. Their only application here would be for screening, but for that purpose, they're out there. They're they've been used for years. They're battlefield hardened. But, you know, you always pay a price in terms of analytical specificity with those kinds of instruments. But if you look at how forensic scientists typically do analysis, you start with a screening, ideally. And so that's what we were using there. But our interest quickly moved away and into more detail into the organics and now combined methods for organics and inorganics. Now, of course, traditionally what uh, happens in uh, the crime scene work or coming back into the crime laboratory is to look at inorganic residues and look at the morphology of the particulate matter from gunshot residue. There are limitations to inorganic gunshot residue, but organic gunshot residue isn't well understood. I mean, one of the wonderful things that came out of your work is an improved understanding of kind of how organic gunshot residue might be utilized. Can you kind of give a, an idea of kind of what is the promise of organic gunshot residue? And we're certainly not the first ones to develop liquid chromatography methods for gunshot residue. That work kicked off in the late 1990s, and there were several authors working on that. But I think one of the things for the context of the crime laboratory that makes this work interesting and exciting is you use mass spectrometry systems, LCMSs, that most laboratories now have, because typically in the toxicology section, really it's the first time that that laboratories at least have had the instrumentation that could potentially be used for the organics. I look at at this methodology, the organics and the combined inorganic and organic as a supplement to the the SEM methodology, because the SEM, it's powerful. It has morphology and elemental composition, but it does have some limitations. This methodology promises to detect organic and, in our latest research, inorganics from the same sample. So I think once we can get over that hump of validation and population studies, I I see it as a really nice complement to SEM. One of the things that uh, I thought was really interesting is the idea that on the organic side, there are some interesting things that happen over time. Some organics adsorb into the skin better than others. You know, at least there's some suggestion that they might even be able to give information about the time since the firearm was discharged near the individual. Well, we did do some work back in, in 2014 where we looked at the fate of this material, the organics, a group of organics, once they were deposited on the skin. Because the thinking is that when a weapon is discharged, the method that the organics are deposited on the hands is going to be just as unburnt or partially burnt propellant particles and particulates but also volatilized and condensed materials to a certain extent. So we were interested in seeing if it was possible to find out how long they would persist, because that's a big question. You know, we know we have a reasonable idea about persistence of our particulates of GSR, but, you know, our initial assumption was, well, these are probably a little fat-soluble. They might stay on the hands a little bit longer, but if they're fat-soluble, then they may permeate. 
So we did some work with that, and we got some interesting results. The diphenylamine family tended to, well, diphenylamine itself tends to evaporate fairly quickly, and it does absorb into the skin. And other compounds like ethyl centralite, for example, just sat there on the surface. So it might be able to extend the window a little bit of detection. I don't think we'll ever do time since discharge, but we could certainly provide some I would hope some investigative information along those lines, but it's not, I mean, we're never going to get a time since discharge with that approach. So there's a variety of uh, things that have been, that various folks have looked at in this area. Some of them are, as you're saying, from the propellant floor. Uh, there's also stabilizers. There's stuff from the primer. There's some talk about maybe uh, nitrocellulose uh, residues. So what kind of residues were you really focused on in the current study, or is it all of the above? Well, in the current study, we are not looking at the energetics. So the energetic material would be like in double-based powder, it's nitroglycerin and nitrocellulose. You can do nitroglycerin. Many groups have done it before, but we elected not to go after it initially because it's a little more challenging with the electrospray instrument that we're using. So we focused on stabilizers, flash suppression. We're working with the same group of organics that many authors have been working with. So the diphenylamine and the diphenylamine families, nitrotiolines, dinitrotiolines. We have about six that we can routinely detect, methyl centralite, methyl centralite. So those are all adjuncts to the formulation and not part of what produces the hot expanding gas. Then the other part of it that we're interested in is the primer residues, which is the barium lead antimony. You can also see zinc. It depends on the composition. And then you also get material from the, the weapon itself, from the cartridge case, so you can see copper and things like that. We were looking broadly based at the adjuncts to the energetics and to the primer residues themselves. So one of the things about inorganic is that they are multiple environmental sources of some of those inorganic constituents, uh, you know, the classic ones one is like brake pads and that kind of thing. Right, right. Are there other sources of some of these organics? I mean, are, are those uh, the compounds such as the uh, uh, stabilizer materials uh, 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 seen elsewhere in the environment? Sure. Um, nitrocell- uh, sorry, nitroglycerin is uh, commonly used for drugs. It's used as a vasodilator, so people have uh, nitroglycerin tablets. Diphenylamine is fairly widely used It's uh, in a lot of things. I was surprised when we started looking into it. So that's, um, but we've we've done some preliminary backgrounds. We don't see it per se, but we know it's out there. Ethyl and methyl centralite, those are fairly specialized, and we really haven't seen in the literature reports of these being commonly used in other things. So certainly, yeah, any compound or any target that you pick, you have to be aware of the possibility of background contamination. And our basic approach was you do a lot of blanks, you design your shooting study very carefully, you characterize a lot of skin samples and background, and then you, I mean, we're essentially trying to beat the problem into submission because you wouldn't make a call based on, oh, we found lead and diphenylamine. But you think about if we find three or four or five of these metals and we find three, four, five, six of the organics, and you combine those, then you start to have a more compelling case, but you still have to have the database behind it. Sure. What is the research question specifically on the NIJ grants that you presented at the NIJ Research Symposium? The research question related to can we develop a method in which we can analyze both the organic and the inorganic constituents of gunshot residue from a single sample using a single instrument and a single chromatographic column. And we focused on that instrument because that's the one that's going to be available to the most forensic laboratories. It's not the kind of thing you do with GCMS. Yeah, the LC, yeah, GCMS, you can detect some of these things, but it's not, it just doesn't work that well. We tried and we, we ran that one into the ground. It's just, and we didn't expect it to. So for this combination of constituents, 
we wanted to go after them using LCMS and something that any toxicology lab would probably be using by this point. You're using electrospray ionization. Now, that's a little less common, right? That's not necessarily something that is used in the LCMS instruments in the forensic laboratories, or am I wrong on that? Uh, yeah, you're wrong. <laughs> okay. They're, wide, they're widely used, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's um, In fact, I would hazard the vast majority of them are based on electrospray. Some use atmospheric pressure chemical, but electrospray has become kind of the default ionization source for these, the kind of instruments that we would use in forensic science, like routine use, routine assay kind of development systems where they do postmortem screening, that sort of stuff. Same instrument. And what kind of a column are you using? Is it a uh, nonpolar column or is it a uh, <laughs> in between? What are you doing? It's a relatively new phase, and, and I can sometime provide a list of, of all the things that don't work because the, it's long and distinguished because we tried everything. A typical C18 works fine for the organics, but the complexes we make of the inorganics come out in the void volume, so that's not terribly helpful. You can do it that way, but it's, it doesn't really buy you any chromatographic separation. We've tried some pharmaceutical mixed-mode columns, they're called. They're designed to do drugs where you can do the cation and the drug itself, so if you have an acidic or basic drug, you can find the drug itself and the counter-ion. Plus, it's got some reverse phase activity. That didn't work so well. We tried some variations on HILIC, and I think we ran into the same thing that a lot of people run in with HILIC. It's just really hard to equilibrate it. So after a lengthy set of spectacular failures, we found a phase called PFP. And it, it's a very simple phase. It's a perfluorobenzene that really just bonded to silica. And nobody really understands a lot of its activity because it does have some anti-exchange capability but it also works in reverse phase. So that's what we're working with right now. And at that point when we gave the talk at the academy meeting, but we have since done that and we presented some of that at PitCon. So we have it working and we do have retention of the metal complexes, which is really the hard thing. And we can do it with one injection. It's not validated yet, but we are able to do barium, antimony, and lead as well. But yeah, it's, it's a okay. PFP column and it's widely available. We're using Agilent, but you can get them from any of the chromatography vendors. So it's not exotic, and it's not any more expensive than any of the others. Absolutely. Well, yeah, anyone who's done any kind of, especially, you know, I'm more used to GC mass spec, as I just revealed by my foolishness with electrospray ionization. But, but anyone who's done any kind of chromatography method development knows that finding the right column can be can be difficult, especially when you're trying to look at such a broad range of chemistry. <laughs> Yeah, and it, it's by far the most difficult chromatographic challenge I've ever had. Like the barium, barium and lead and copper zinc are positive complexes when you put them in the crown ethers. The antimony and actually copper and zinc will form very nice complexes that you have to do in the negative mode, But so they're negatively charged. So we have anions and cations, and then we have the range of the organics. And it literally was several years long to try to find a column that would work and not be a one-hit wonder. I mean, it has to work, it has to equilibrate, and it has to work on the next one as well, or it's, it has no future in a forensic laboratory. So you collected using SEM, scanning electron microscopy subs, but you topped those subs with what you call your soft commercial polymer adapted yes. skin. How different is that from traditional inorganic GSR collection? Well, it's it's the same general idea, and we did we've done it on SEM tape. It certainly works. It's, we don't get quite as good a recovery off the tape, but we can do it. But actually, since you have to move that substrate into a centrifuge tube, we had a lot of trouble doing that with the carbon tape and not destroying it. This polymer, it's called Tessatac, and it was actually suggested to me by Dr. Ludwig Niauer, who's with the BKA in Germany. 
and they were using it for organics. It's the kind of material that college students use to stick posters to the wall without destroying the wall. So it's, it has adhesive properties, but it doesn't have an adhesive in it. And it's just like a soft PDMS kind of a polymer, but it's a little bit of a more of a pillow shape than um, something flat. But that it's very easy to peel it off the stub and then stick it in on the inside of the centrifuge tube. So it works like a charm for that. The disadvantage, of course, is you can't do SEM on the material when you're done. But that's one of the disadvantages of this approach. I mean, you do extract it with acids, and you do destroy the sample. Yeah, because, you know, there is something to be said for the traditional SEM technique, because you can look at specific particles and match up the morphology and the composition. And there are those who say that gives you a pretty good detection. Of course, I don't know if anybody's done a proper study, uh, you know, what the false positive and negative rate is, yeah. but... But, well, yeah, but it I mean, is useful that way. Oh, oh yeah, and that's I, I would reiterate again, it's not this is not meant to replace it or, you know, that's a solid technique. It's been around and if you're talking about transfer evidence, this, you know, SEM is the way you'll have to do it. So initially we did that and I think the next stage that we'll start working on, we will divide the stub. And they're, they're, we're not the first ones to do that either. There were a couple of studies in 2014 and 2015 that we're publishing a paper in FSI and all that is in there. And we're going to do the same thing. We're going to put soft polymer on half of a stub and the tape on the other half of the stub because the detection limits we're getting are very good. So splitting the sample at this point isn't going to hurt anything, but this will allow us to validate it and show a methodology that preserves some of the sample, you know, for further investigation. Because, yeah, there's no question that what we're doing now with the, the research and development is destroying the sample. You know, in a forensic world, you can't do that, so... I am comfortable, though, that splitting them will work based on our detection limits. One of the issues that I do think the, the traditional method has is that it is very heavily dependent upon the sampling mechanism, and it also is dependent upon the operator very much of the SEM to be able to know what he or she is doing and be able to do a good analysis. The advantage that you have, I think, is my guess is, and again, this is speculative, that your limit of detection is going to be much better and that you're going to have more consistent results than you can probably get using traditional methods. Well, I mean, that's certainly our hope. And the other thing is we're trying, this would allow this kind of an assay to get into the, we'd hope, the category of relatively routine, like you see in seized drugs and you see in postmortem screening, because those methods just get better as the instruments get better. So that's one of the things, one of the reasons we were quite interested in doing it that way. And the other thing is, I think you can, I mean, I think the splitting of samples is going to work fine. You can validate it, but it's something that laboratories already have. And so that's of interest. Again, we're not trying to replace SEM. We're just, this is the technology that's really ready to be exploited. I mean, they both need solid population studies behind them. We would not put this forth without those for casework, for certain. That's the next thing that we're proposing is doing a population study to provide some data. Because you know, I think one of the disadvantages of, of the SEM method, and this is common to a lot of older forensic methods that we're, we're bringing up and changing, is the terminology that's used. And it's a really vexing problem. I mean, the methodology in the AST method talks about characteristic consistent with, and those are difficult words to define. And we're trying to move this into at least where we have some quantitative and probabilistic data associated with it to go with it. I mean, it's a hard problem. It's not an overt criticism per se. It's just a recognition that all of the trace and pattern disciplines are facing. How do you phrase it so you don't overstate the value and you don't understate it, but you still transmit your knowledge and your opinion in the best possible way? Anything that's chosen is going to be difficult and challenged. 
our hope is we can make this more of just a quantitative assay. And you have to develop the database behind it, though. That's for sure. There are some variables in your technique. In particular, if you take the goo, basically, I'll call it goo, as opposed to a bleed used for pest attack. So you take the pest attack goo off of the stub, and you, you're putting it into a centrifuge tube. There's got to be some kind of wash, some kind of digestion set of steps that you need to take to get it into solution so that it can be actually injected into your LCMS. And, of course, that has got to have some variability associated with it. Sure. And you have to handle everything very carefully. You got to make sure you use clean forceps. You got to do, you know, the normal analytical process of blanks and controls, you know. And so that was part of what we did was make sure that if we're picking something up, that we're really picking it up from the weapons discharge and not anything else in this proof of concept study. This is what we reported on the meeting. So yeah, you do. So we, you peel that off with gloves and clean forceps. You put it in the centrifuge tube, and then you extract for the organics, which is very straightforward. It's acetonitrile. Three small aliquots, you dry it down, and you reconstitute it. And again, that's we didn't develop that. That's analogous with many methods that have been reported in the past, including what they do at the BKA. Then we dry the test attack down because it's still in the test tube. And then we do we add our acid digestion mixture, and it really does turn it into a bit of a goo. But we, we pull that off, centrifuge it down, and then dilute it with water, and then we add our complexing agents. And it's just it's a single addition. It's not It's really very simple. The whole extraction takes about 30 minutes. We heat the digestion when it's going. And actually, in just this last week, we've actually combined the extract so you can inject it once on the instrument. So that's that's what we had really, our goal was to get to the point where we could do one injection on the one column with one methodology. Once it's in the tube, you don't ever touch it again. But there, you know, there are a few steps. But it's, I mean, it's no more complicated than you would do for sample prep for blood or urine or something like that. In my notes, I note that uh, you all had some difficulties with antimony. That's the one that was the most <laughs> difficult. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. about I mean, antimony? Oh, I, we have many names for antimony, none of them flattering. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's a, it's, a, it's a little different. The other metals that we're working with, like barium and lead and copper and zinc, they're all transition metals, and they behave very well. Antimony is a metalloid like arsenic. And we were not able to complex it with crown ether successfully in this initial run through. And in fact, nobody in the literature, we never found anything. It will complex with things like EDTA, which uh, most of the folks out there will remember as a good complexing agent. And indeed, it's sold. The standards that you buy come with tartaric acid as a stabilizer. And because it's of such great environmental interest, people have been studying it for a long time. And it's got two common oxidation states. It's really difficult to extract with nitric acid. So, it took, you know, this is, again, another year and a half of our lives summarized down to we went into the environmental literature to find a lot of the settings for this and, and how to extract it. And we ended up using tartaric acid to complex it, and that works. It works actually very well in the negative mode. It'll chromatograph. Um, but we still think we can get a type of crown ether complex because the goal is to get one complexing agent so that there's one addition of one complexing agent so you can see antimony. But right now with the tartaric acid, it's working very well, but we're looking at these other complexing agents that are also cheap and inexpensive. I mean, the 18.6 crown ether is essentially non-toxic, and you can get 50 grams for five bucks at Sigma. So it's not an expensive thing. That's another thing we are very concerned about. Sure, I would think the antimony is one of the more important uh, elements to get. Also. Oh yeah, yeah. If you can't get antimony, this is not really a viable beyond a quick screening. So that yeah, we were very aware that that we would have to get antimony. Now we're getting barium antimony lead copper, zinc, strontium, and iron and calcium. Uh, calcium we just use as a marker of to 
successfully sampling the skin. It's, it isn't gunshot residue, but you can't really, if you don't sample the skin properly, you won't see the calcium. The iron is kind of intriguing. There are some reports, well, I haven't seen them recently, but early on folks were using presumptive tests for iron on skin to see if somebody handled weapons that were had a lot of iron in them. Now that the polymeric weapons are common, we don't really think we're getting iron from handling the weapon, but we still see iron in significant amounts after the discharge. So that one I think is worth investigating a little bit more. The other part of this too is that the interpretation of the data, I would think would not necessarily be that straightforward either. You have all these complexing agents coming out of your column at different times, hopefully, and a variety of organic compounds as well. And teasing all that out and interpreting it could be quite a challenge, especially given the fact that you're going to see variability. Some of the stuff is going to be closer to limit of detection. Other the stuff might be quite easy to find. Uh, how difficult is it to interpret these chromatograms? Well, at the moment, I think it's not as bad. And, and folks that are out there that do toxicology will, you know, it's, you have retention time information, which we've gotten pretty reproducible. You have an MRM transition or two for the metals. And between those two things, it, you know the retention time window, it's, it's fairly easy to program into the system. The detection limits, we've always worked in terms of number of shots because, I mean, when you shoot a firearm, every discharge event is so different that there, I don't think you can possibly standardize that. But you can say, yes, we can routinely collect or get positive information from above limited detection for single shot, double shot, something like that. So we work in terms of single shots or nanogram detection limits. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, that's our goal. We realize if it's, it has to be on a par with a toxicology or seized drug assay, or it's not going to fly. It's not, there's no motivation for them to adopt it. So that's what we're working is to get it down to that kind of a, a validation where you've got a validated method, you can get an app note, and you can reproduce it in your lab. Yeah, so that's, that's what we're working towards now. And then the population study to go behind it, because we need to know how often do you see lead on somebody's hands? How often do you see barium? You know, because barium, it's, every piece of paper that you have in front of you has barium in it because it's a common whitener. So we don't see it, but we've done, you know, we've only worked with a small group of people so far. So that's an integral required piece of this before it's going to go live. Sure. And you've looked at, from what I can tell, two different kinds of guns, a 38 uh, caliber revolver and a 9 millimeter semi-automatic right. pistol. And right. with some differences between the two. Yeah, some interesting uh, things in the, I think, in the propellant characteristics, but it, we didn't analyze the propellant, nor did we analyze the primers in this for this study. That will certainly come in the next ones. We just wanted to see what we could detect after single, two, and three-shot discharges. And we were very careful on the design of that study because we have a ballistics research facility. It's like a semi-trailer with a shooting range in it. It's not uncommon in the forensic. As forensic labs, we'll use the same sort of thing. So we could have everybody that was going to shoot was outside. We had them wash their hands. We sampled that and that was a blank, and then when it was their turn to discharge the weapon, they would walk into this range, they'd be handed the gun, they would fire the shot or two shots or, or three shots, then they'd hand the weapon back, they were sampled, and then they'd go outside, wash their hands, and were sampled again. So we were very confident in the study that if we did detect it, it came from discharge of the weapon. But it wasn't a huge population. It would not stand as a population study. That wasn't the point of it. I mean, we have to get the validated method going first, which we're very close to now, and then we can talk about doing population studies, which is the clear next step. And just to be absolutely clear, the, the OSAC subcommittee on GSR 
definitely is paying very close attention, not only to your study, but uh, we actually had uh, Professor Lednap on as well on the podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, he has a, has a very different, interesting micro-ramen kind of approach to the same issue. There's uh, FIU has got some things that they're looking at and other, other research groups. So there's a variety of approaches, but there's, this is definitely a priority for the community of people who are looking at gunshot residues to try to find techniques that can take advantage of the full range of chemistry that happens when a gun discharges. Our goal is really to add it to the toolbox because we are at this point. 15 years ago, this really wouldn't have been viable because labs didn't have access to the LCMSs that they needed to do this. So this develop, all this incredible development in LCMS technology has really opened a lot of options. So I think we should take advantage of it and add it to the range of techniques that are available because I don't foresee this type of methodology, organic GSR, as being terribly helpful for transfer or, I mean, it's just not that. We know it transfers a little bit with handshakes and things like that, but it's not like particulate GSR that's going to, in terms of how it moves. So it adds another capability that has the ability to be quantitative in the sense that we can, you know, once we have a, a method going, we can quantitate, we can relate it back, and we'll have ranges to work with. And we can work with, you know, standard reference materials, which that's a very difficult thing to come by. It becomes more of a routine chemistry assay. That's our goal. Going back to this whole skin absorption issue really quickly, so on the people, when you swab them after they had washed their hands post-shooting, right. did you pick up any of the organic constituents at that time after uh, post-hand washing? No, we didn't see anything. The only thing we we would pick up calcium, um, but that was it. And it had we had we seen it, we would have stopped because we want to make sure that you know it wasn't firing one shot and then there's some residuals and they fire two, and that we want to make sure it wasn't building up. So, but no, we didn't see anything in the in those samples. We did a, about a hundred people, I think, about three or four years ago with ion mobility spectrometry. We did see patterns that we would associate with organic gunshot residue. We did um, police officers. We talked to people at gun stores. So. It's inevitable that there will be materials in the background. We just have to sort through how often and under what circumstances and what compounds. Okay. Well, give me give me a minute on the toxicity of synthetic cannabinoids because I, I did oh, not sure. know that you were involved with that. <laughs> Tell me about the toxicity of synthetic cannabinoids, what you're doing over there. Well, actually, this um, this wrapped up. We had a, an NIJ graduate student fellowship. Uh, one of my students, his name is Dr. Stephen Razo now. And we were looking at, and this again, it goes back several years, I started getting interested in what are some of the combustion products of common drugs of abuse? Because a lot of them are ingested by smoking. And the reason that you smoke, the user smokes these, is because they're volatilized, they get into the lungs, and they're immediately in the bloodstream. But nobody had really done a, a lot of systematic look at what are some of the combustion byproducts and are they part of the toxicity? You know, when I was doing my forensic work at I was with the New Mexico State Police as a seized drug chemist. There was a handful of drugs, and we had none of the real designer drug kind of issues. And then starting in like 2007, 2008, when the cannabinoids, synthetic cannabinoids, and then the methcathinones and the uh, you know, opiates came on the scene, it really changed everything. And we were wondering if some of the toxicity that you're seeing with the synthetic cannabinoids, which is really difficult to interpret, might be coming from the smoking event, because those are almost exclusively ingested by smoking. So that's how we got interested in that, and that's how we, we worked on that. We identified some really interesting core compounds, um, some interesting chemistry in the heating. So we, we got that list out there for consideration by the community, and other people were doing these kind of studies as well. But it's, you know, the, the toxicity and the 
the syndromes that are being seen in emergency rooms with the synthetic cannabinoids in particular are, are baffling. I mean, and it, it's hard to recognize what's going on. And the user community has this idea through the advertising that this is a legal high or a safe high, and it's not. I mean, people are dying from this stuff, whereas people don't die from marijuana. So we're just trying to help identify what might be part of that toxic syndrome. Okay, interesting. Well, that's that's a podcast in and of itself, but I'm glad I asked. <laughs> really interesting perspective. So, well, thank you very much, Dr. Bell, for being on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for the chance to talk. Yeah, so we're very, very fortunate to have Dr. Suzanne Bell with us today from West Virginia University. Uh, to discuss her work in looking at uh, LPMS of organic and inorganic residues from gunshots for uh, detection of uh, exposure to gunshots. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please be sure to like and follow Just Science on your podcast platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and resources in the forensic field, please visit forensiccoe.org. There you will find additional webinars, guidance documents, reports, and conference information. And please follow the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And make sure to sign up for our newsletter at ForensicsCOE.org as well. I'm John Morgan, and this has been another episode of Just Science. Next week, Just Science interviews Dr. Rebecca Wagner about the quantitative analysis of opioids, cocaine, and cocaine metabolites in biological matrices, Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.